Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Last Sisyphus, a podcast dedicated to fiction and philosophy. I'm your host, Colin Jones, and today I want to talk about Newt Hampson's 1890 novel, Hunger. I can't remember the first time I heard of Newt Hampson and his seminal work, Hunger. It must have been during a time when I was searching for authors in books that had commonalities with Albert Camus and the Absurd. It's difficult to say. I know I read this book in 2020, perhaps my favorite book read last year, and have consistently come back to it through reflection. It's such a simple text that tells a simple story, but it has had a huge impact on me, both in terms of philosophical thought and what literature can and should do. But... As usual, let's start out by addressing the author of Hunger, Newt Hampson. Hampson was a prolific Norwegian writer, publishing more than 20 novels during his lifetime, including a collection of poetry, some short stories, plays, a travelogue, and even some nonfiction essays. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1920 as a result. As a young man, Hampson objected to the conventional tropes of realism and naturalism that was so prevalent in literature at the time favoring modernist approaches to storytelling that leaned heavily on the intricacies and uncertainties of the human mind. This makes a lot of sense considering the chaos of the time period, World War I being just one example. These experimental literary moves typically surface in the form of digression, stream of consciousness, and an almost unhealthy dose of self-reflection in hunger, all of which Hampson put to effective use. There are many people who have a certain amount of distaste for this kind of writing, but I happen to enjoy stories that take you for a ride in ways that conventional stories cannot. Hampson's writing reminds me a lot of Virginia Woolf's writing style, with the deployment of stream of consciousness, in digression, etc. He once noted that writers of any stripe should set out to describe the, quote, whisper of blood and the pleading of bone marrow, close quote, drawing attention to the value of imagery, expressionism, and even the little absurdities that constitute a life. It could be that Hampson's work had an influence on Andre Breton and the Surrealist movement as well, though I have no evidence to back up this claim. They nevertheless share some of the same ideas, least of which is breaking through the conventions and artistic expectations of the day. Hampson is oftentimes compared to Fyodor Dostoevsky in the way he expresses his contradictory attitude towards society and the culture he is so entrenched in. This typically manifests in commentary on the meaning of life, existence of God, community, and the hopeless attempt at coherence in a world run amok with incoherence and irrationality. Franz Kafka would undoubtedly be a welcome member in this group as well. So what is hunger about? As I mentioned, hunger is a very simple story, at least on the surface, that features a nameless intellectual who is literally starving on the streets of Oslo, looking for work as a writer. As can probably be assumed, he has little luck in doing so. Throughout the narrative, our nameless protagonist meets a number of different people, people he attempts to impress and bargain with through his refinement as a citizen of the city. This is just the problem, though. Our nameless protagonist possesses such an allegiance to his own pride that he, a lot of times, refuses food and other essentials that people offer him. He never wants to come off as needing the help of his community. It could be said that the word hunger in the story, applies to a number of different dimensions of the protagonist's life. He is starving for relevance, for food, for love, but he cannot get himself to accept that some things are simply out of his control, and that he may need the help of his fellow city dwellers, all because of his pride. In this way, Hampson nails the modern-day plight of the West, 
the West of which I am a part, puts a premium on individualism to the extent that we will allow ourselves to be destroyed before we concede that we may need someone else's help, that we may need our family's help, that we may need help from friends. Though there are many good qualities to being independent, Hampson's protagonist in Hunger is a perfect demonstration of how individualism, such as the objectivism of Ayn Rand and hyper-individualism of Max Stirner, for example, can have the opposite effect. It has the very real possibility of annihilating a life. The concept of class dynamics is discussed in the book with an astounding level of accuracy, at least as far as I can tell. One quote the protagonist expresses in the book is as follows, quote, The intelligent poor individual was a much finer observer than the intelligent rich one. The poor individual looks around him at every step, listens suspiciously to every word he hears from the people he meets. Thus, every step he takes presents a problem, a task for his thoughts and feelings. He is alert and sensitive. He is experienced. His soul has been burned. Close quote. The book in many ways is about the existential plight of the common person, the common person being that which has had to constantly think why they are common and poor and at a disadvantage relative to their wealthy counterparts. These are luxuries that the wealthy do not need to think about, at least not on the level of the so-called common person. This is made even more clear, as Hampson mentions, when it comes to the common person who happens to have a certain level of education. In this way, I am reminded of Dostoevsky's bitter and rambling narrator from Notes from the Underground, featuring a self-reflexive narrator who is obviously educated, but is paralyzed by the society in which they live. There is a strange contradiction in the protagonist himself, however, and that he seems to presume the motives of those around him while being profoundly confused about what he himself is. There is another quote from the book I would like to share that explains this very thing. Quote, I was conscious all the time that I was following mad whims without being able to do anything about it. Despite my alienation from myself at that moment, and even though I was nothing but a battleground for invisible forces, I was aware of every detail of what was going on around me. Close quote. I don't think I'm the only one who has felt something similar to this before. I have often presumed the motives of those around me, which typically is an indication of my own insecurity in certain areas of my own life, while simultaneously having an inability to understand what or who I am. I know that may sound a little bit melodramatic, but stay with me for a moment. Let me give an example. Let's say you are angry. Even though you are angry, your whole existence is never wholly consumed by that anger while you are in the throes of that strong emotion. There is something inside your head, a non-angry part, that registers that you are angry. It is almost as if there are multiple neighborhoods within your own head that keep tabs on other neighborhoods, constantly trying to make sense of itself as a whole. So the question arises, which of the psychological neighborhoods inside of you is really you? If they are all you, then it is easy to see how absurd it would be to lay claim to all these contradictory feelings going on in your head at the same time. But perhaps that's the point. Perhaps we as humans are, at least at the core, contradictory in this way. I don't think Hampson would disagree with this proposition. The last bit I want to mention about hunger is its attitude toward God and religion. The protagonist, again like Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, tackles the concept of God with suspicion. When Hampson's protagonist learns that he is unable to change his situation in the world, he doesn't conclude that his circumstance is merely the plight of the society that he finds himself in. Instead, he goes after the creator of the universe, raging against the very thing that created him. The peculiar part of this strand of the story is that while the protagonist smashes his metaphorical fists against the doors of God's kingdom, 
he continues to tell himself that he does not believe in God. This is another delicious contradiction. It makes the reader wonder if the protagonist is being completely honest with himself or if he wants to want to not believe in God. I'll leave you with a quote from the book that addresses this very thing. Quote, I tell you, you heaven's holy bale, you don't exist, but that if you did, I would curse you so that your heaven would quiver with the fire of hell. I tell you, I have offered you my service, and you repulsed me, and I turned my back on you for all eternity because you did not know your time of visitation. I tell you that I am about to die, and yet I mock you. You heaven, God, and Abbas, with death staring me in the face, I tell you, I would rather be a bondsman in hell than a freedman in your mansions. I tell you, I am filled with a blissful contempt for your divine paltriness, and I choose the abyss of destruction for a perpetual resort, where the devils Judas and Pharaoh are cast down. You can feel the power in the protagonist's words there. You can feel the anger and frustration of the protagonist as you read his words, but there is a small part of you that will continue to ask if Hampson's nameless intellectual is really being authentic, or if he is merely performing for a certain neighborhood within his own psychology. It's really, really difficult to tell. That quote that I just read reminds me of the early 20th century British writer Ivy Compton Burnett in a line she wrote, quote, I don't feel I'm going to meet my maker, and if I were, I should not fear him. He has not earned the feeling. I almost think he ought to fear me. Close quote. I would recommend this book for those of you who like stream of consciousness and stories that do not rely on plot, because this is not a story with a plot, per se. It is a character-driven story. It is a character study, a story about a man who cannot stand himself while also puffing up his own ego. The story, in the last analysis, is about a man who goes on strike against humanity for his own shortcomings. It's an exploration of the human psyche and about the ways we rationalize the world in order to continue. If you enjoyed this review, and by extension, this podcast, please consider supporting me through Patreon. New episodes air every week on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at the last Sisyphus, or you can shoot me an email at Colin C O L L I N Jones, the number fifteen at protonmail.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>